Ignorance of each other is what has made unity impossible in the past. Therefore, we need enlightenment. We need more light about each other. Light creates understanding. Understanding creates love. Love creates patience. And patience creates unity. Malcolm X. Hello, and thank you for joining us. My name is Neil Donaldson, and you are now listening to the Reason With Logic podcast. This is where we have thought-provoking conversations with entrepreneurs and people from various walks of life to gain knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and really to be curious about ourselves and each other and the worlds that we live in. Today, we have Andrea Page, who is a fitness instructor, social justice advocate, and a mother of three boys. We discuss the impacts of COVID, the increased racial divide amongst community, allyship, anti-Black racism, and tangible ways of moving forward. Um, So I'm a white mother of three Black boys. And, you know, so understanding and dealing with my own internalized racism Mm -hmm. has been a huge priority of mine. It has been a key priority in wanting to understand how to parent and empower my children. But as you and I spoke of earlier um, in the last few days, um, obviously, you know, anybody who is kind of watching, uh, who has an ounce of heart, uh, what's going on right now is is feeling a lot of emotion and pain. and, And we are seeing in real time what black people have been experiencing for generations. But, you know, in the age of social media, so much of it's being documented um, that, you know, the average everyday person that might not really see it, but hear about it is going holy smokes. In fact, I have never really seen so many white people speak up, to be honest, this week, um, which I'm grateful for. I want to acknowledge that. But then there's this part of me that's a little bit bitter, which I'm sure uh, I also feel like that's a sentiment from, you know, a lot of my friends who are black, who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are we're all eh, like how many people have had to die? Why did it have to be so? Why did it have to have? Why did so much have to happen for people to speak up? And I know that that's not productive. Looking in the rearview mirror really is only purposeful if it's going to help us advantage. But I have had a lot of those kinds of emotions. Um, I shared a picture on social media this week um, after asking my son to go out in the backyard and paint a picture with me. And, and, you know, I am never ceased to I, I never cease to amaze myself about how there's still unconscious bias um, and awareness that need work that I still need to do because mm-hmm. even in that moment I never like when it happened in real time and I looked over to see the picture that my son was painting yeah I I realized I had literally experienced like two hours of cognitive dissonance where I was like not I was like thinking we were going to go back in the yard and paint right. some pictures of flowers in nature and then he painted this picture of it, it's so emotional even for me to think about it, but of, of blood and of words. And 
And it really was this like slap in my face of what I already know to be true, but to, to just yet again, see it on paper that this is what is living in his psyche. Right. We're all the result of how he feels about the world and how they feel about him. Yeah, no, that's, that's heavy. And um, I don't know if you had any another point to add to it before I cut you off, but, um, <laughs> but I, I want to know, like, you know, like, what is it, like for you as, as a white woman experiencing that, you know, raising black children? I am, well, another thing we spoke about earlier, I'm reflecting a lot this week. I'm trying to hold space for the people in my life mm -hmm. to, to prioritize their emotions, but I'm undeniably feeling so much emotion myself, which I recognize and I always think like, if I did not have black children, Mm. Where would I be right now? Now, it would not, I, it would be fair to say that I'd started doing a lot of the work way before I had my kids. Right. Um, not sure if I've told you the story before, but I was 13 years old living in a shelter. Uh, I was homeless, and my youth counselor was a black woman who is still one of my best mentors to this day. And mm. she was, uh, you know, I had grown up mostly in Owen Sound, but in this time I was in Barrie, mm. so Owen Sound was predominantly white people, the only black people yeah. you saw migrant workers. And my grandfather, you know, who I loved and mm -hmm. had to navigate some of that, so much of that was racist, as were many old British men and still are. And so, so much of the racism that I was exposed to growing up was completely unidentified and just normalized. You know, so I go into the shelter at 13 years old and I'm dealing with my personal childhood abuse. Yeah. And this engages me with love, compassion, empathy, and teaches me so much about how my personal human boundaries had been crossed. Wow. And that, she confronts a lot of my ideologies all simultaneously. Wow. At years old, there was not a moment that a word or a thought or an idea that could slip out of my mouth that was... Uh, expressing my white privilege or abuse of power or lack of knowledge or lack of awareness that she would let slide ever. Mm -hmm. right. And in that, she also showed me love and compassion and empathy for the things in the ways that I had been abused. So I had so much respect for her. And, you know, as a result, it, she, that was one of my early teachings and shapings and deepened awareness that I basically took into my life. And in that, you know, I worked in the shelter system, so I've always been a very strong voice. I've always taken the time to read and to learn and to challenge myself. And most importantly, I think the most important part is to listen to black people. Mm. Like to stop defending myself. Mm. And, that, and that's one of the things that frustrates me the most. So you guys, that's your point. One of the things that frustrates me, and I see this, you know, a lot in raising my kids in the educational system, when I confront things that are oppressive or ideas that I know that are not um, conducive or consistent with the educational environment that my children are entitled to, to build their self-esteem and to grow into strong black men, right. and, I, and I challenge it it is almost 100% of the time met with resistance. Mm. And it is so frustrating and it is so irritating, especially coming from educators. Right. Because we have a responsibility as educators 
to be always open to learning. And, you know, I think when I see what's going on this week, I am happy to hear people um, outraged, white people outraged and speaking up. Um, I also am, and which is something I've said, you know, I am acutely of the, aware of the people who are still silent. It's deafening. Um, and um, I, I don't know, I think one of the things that is upsetting me and concerning me the most um, is I, I don't know, I've, I've worked so hard to be what I hope to be, mm -hmm. an parent, knowing that I'm a white mom raising black boys and needing to understand their experience of the world even though it's not mine. Right. And I also realized that there's been many times along the way that I have failed. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to live with. Um, and I, I don't want to live with it. I want to challenge it, push myself to do better. But I found myself grieving a lot this week. Mm -hmm. um, and I've found myself asking myself questions out loud, like, should white people just unconsciously bring mixed race children into the world without doing the work first? Like it's a huge responsibility. Mm. You don't just get to do that and take it lightly and just think, yeah, I got this. That's a big one right there. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you have to uh, realize that, you know, your love for your child is, is, is simply not enough. Mm. Wow. Your love for your child is simply not enough. Yeah. You know, sorry. No, that's even, and, and it kind of goes back to like the point that you made before about, you know, you have been making note of those who have been silent um, during this whole um, process. And I think that's where like the frustration, um, you know, kind of, you know, adds on to, you know, um, I'm, I'm just curious to know, like what, for those who are silent, you know, cause I feel like there's maybe people who, who want to contribute, but may not know how to, you know, um, what what are some suggestions that you feel that you can offer to kind of like move that 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 fear, I guess, forward? So you're saying the fear that people have about these conversations? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think I'm a bit tough about this. Suck it up. Mm -hmm. Like, seriously? Like, deal with it. Feel it. Sit in it. Too bad. Like. And I get it, like speaking, you know, I, 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 would, I would lie. I even get anxious when I get in a conversation like this because I really want to be careful and conscious. I don't want to hurt anyone. Um, but in that, I may still, and you know a perfect example? Because I had this conversation with what I identified as a white woman last night, although she was very defensive and said she was African. I was like, okay, but you're white skin, so I'm not – I. Don't, and and I'm raising black children, and so therefore that means I'm not racist. And I'm like oh that is the load of garbage I could ever hear coming out of a white mother of black children. Mm. So, and how dare you? You know what? There's very my children. Um, they actually can challenge me on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as a parent, there's things that are non-negotiable, but racism or how they feel about my language or things I do or say that make them feel uncomfortable, I stop and I listen. And even if my intentions were not bad, it is irrelevant. I acknowledge it and I own it and I take responsibility. And it still happens 
It's happened in the last month because I think, and I can't take a full, even a portion of responsibility of this. Their father has been the best influence. Uh, my younger two boys' father has been the best influence and the best educator. And so, um, you know, my boys are really aware and educated and speak up for themselves right. and call things out and they call it out in real time with their friends, with their family, with their educators, uh, and they've been encouraged to do so um, while also being conscious of keeping themselves safe. Right. Um, so I feel like, you know, I don't, I. I feel like white privilege is um, rearing its ugly head when you're too scared to have this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's just usable. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm curious to know, like, when was your like first, I guess, like, experience um, with like racial injustice? Like, whether the only thing that you've seen or maybe heard, or you know, um, <laughs> what was that experience? Um. Well, I mean, you know that I, it's interesting because I do believe that maybe there's some intuitiveness that lives in me. I, I think I told you once the stories that I used to lie in my bed at night thinking about starving children all over the world, like being an empath is really exhausting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, although I wasn't aware of it, something felt, I remember walking into the, um, I think it was called Towers in Owen Sound and I would see the migrant workers and, you know, it would be things that I would notice things that my grandfather would pull me away okay. to walk through the door right. uh, or, you know, so little things. I didn't have the, the language or, you know, the developmental abilities to articulate the things that I was feeling and noticing. Um, and then obviously, what's that? You just felt something was off. Yeah. Yeah. Something I just it felt things. There was a lot of things and feelings, but. Um, and then obviously when I worked in social work, I took human services and George Brown. So, you know, but even then, right, lots of people took human services. I can remember sitting in sociology and having debates where it's like people just weren't getting it, no matter what the professor was saying. And but I feel like those profound moments, which I think as a I personally think as a white person could be the closest thing of experiencing it would be through the eyes of your children. Right. Um, gosh, there's so many stories, Neil, like so many stories, like being at a park with my oldest son mm -hmm. and uh, a little girl coming up to me that I used to see at the park with her mom all the time saying, hey, you want to come to my birthday party? But your son can't come because he's brown. Like just point blank like that. Heartbreaking. Yeah. And I was like, what? It just happened. I was so shocked because it, the little girl is like four years old. You know, um, I remember we were running like as a family down the street um, and my ex and my older son, he was running faster. I was pregnant and running, so I was running slower <laughs> and I was pushing my middle son in the stroller and was on Yonge Street in Toronto and a, a person pushed my son off the bike, off his bike and called him a racial slur because he didn't like the way he was biking on the sidewalk. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, um, there's just been so many times I think academically has been one of the most frustrating experiences because, you know, I've said this over and over and over again, you know, the, the silent people scare me the most, mm, yeah. you know, and my kids have always said that, you know, somebody who's blatantly racist is easy to identify and, and remove yourself from, 
Right. People who sit back in silence that perpetuate that that individual's behavior because they know no one's calling them on it. And, you know, uh, as you know, I live in the Niagara region now. and We've been discussing about initiatives that we want to take here. And obviously, we don't live in a vacuum. It happens everywhere. But being a predominantly white community um, that is living on the heels of the Underground Railroad. You know. And um, with a huge migrant worker population, which is essentially meaning there's a whole pile of elitism going on here. People doing favors for black people like. I don't, I have literally, since I've lived in Niagara, I've physically got up from dinner tables and left. Wow. Um, and I've had to end friendships left, right, and center. And I think, you know, again, right, reflecting back on maybe the earlier days where maybe I would be a bit more patient. Yeah. Uh, which exactly which i really now identify as being complacent not patient mm. patient is a way that I'm interesting yeah i can tell myself i'm being patient which means that i'm not really addressing things head on and i'm actually using my white privilege to just ignore something because i don't want to deal with it right. yeah, and I don't want to conflict right yeah. so um yeah that's complacence I, I like that a lot um, I want to kind of go back to a point that, that you made um, earlier about, you know, like, I guess like, like women who, who have, you know, black children, white women who have black children, but then identifies not being racist, like as if just having children is good enough. And you, you mentioned something about, I guess, you know, some kind of like um, knowledge or training that should come before these kind of things. I want you to speak on that, like, you know, on some of your experience in dealing with people like that. You know, I don't think that it's realistic that you're going to, you know, life happens, people fall in love, babies get made, it is what it is. But I think that the moment you know that you are a white parent bringing a child into the world that is not of the same race of you, that you have immediately, in real time, better get your act together. Because the idea that you, let me give you an example. A woman said the other day, a woman that, you know, I think is kind and and she's not raising um a black child herself, but she has a, a, a nephew. And right. she said to me, and, and you know, and I think she's open to listening and learning. I, I know, I know she is, but she said to me, like, I don't think he's experienced racism. And I said, it deeply worries me that you believe that. Wow. Like, and where so, did that conclusion come from? Because he's never said anything to her. Mm. A lot and, of silence, that's for sure. Well, and it's interesting because it's like that that comment that people love to make, uh, well, I've got black friends, right? <laughs> and they don't say blah, blah, blah. And they don't think blah, blah, blah. And I say to them, what makes them, you think that they are confiding in you? <sighs> I said, you know, you know black people, but you're probably not really friends. <laughs> mm, mm. What? Like, no. You know, and you probably have seen microaggressions that you have not either identified because you're completely unaware or you've ignored them and they've noticed, trust you me. They know that they can't trust you. Mm. Another interesting point because, you know, even my son will say sometimes, I always say, I never say, it's not true. I never say never. I don't really date at all, but my son has said like, you don't date white men. And I'm like, that's not true. I have dated white men. 
mm -hmm. uh, many times. But it really doesn't take more than one or two dates to know that I'm never bringing them around my children. Mm. Why, so, what, what do you mean by that? Um, just the 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 microaggressions or the the you know the white fragility and and I'm and then once confronted the responses. Okay, right. I'm not going to bring that into my children's space. Uh, like they have, they have enough to confront in the world. Right. Right. Let's, so, you know, as I always say to my son, I'm open to giving anyone a chance. But, right. you know, I also have to be really calculated about, you know, and it's interesting because I will say I will hear this is a conversation I hear from white women a lot that they feel about black women, for example, mm, okay. that they feel black women are angry or don't really want to be their friend. And I'm like, yeah, OK. And your point is what I said. What do you want them to do? Be squishy and lovey and make it safe for you? It's your job to make it safe for them. Like I said, I don't expect, I don't expect black people to trust me. Mm. I have to earn that trust. You have to earn the trust. So trust isn't given, it's something that's earned. Particularly that, right? And so, and it's interesting because I now, I really, I don't know that I would have maybe always thought that way, but as I'm, I feel that way 100% raising my children that I don't trust white people, um, that I am going to sit back and observe and before I allow you to hold space with my children, because there's so much I can't control in right. the world. Right. But these four walls? That's what's up. Yeah. This is their sanctity, this is their safe space. This is where we don't debate with people around these issues. Right. We don't have those kinds of debating conversations where they've got to prove or I've got to prove what racism looks like. That doesn't happen here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is their safe space where they can breathe and relax and rest mm -hmm. and talk about the political issues in a way that feels safe for them, where they can express and process their emotion from being at school all day and being called, you know, the N word and mm -hmm. The principal is like, well, I heard you said, da da da. Like, some looking for the justification, right. like the constant. This is an everyday thing for black children and black children who are being raised in predominantly white communities. Yo, <laughs> are are you know? And again, especially Niagara, for some reason, I always say, and people don't like to hear it, but it's true. I've lived all over. And Niagara has been a special beast. Right, right. Now, you, you, I want to go back to it because you, you say a lot of great points. Like you mentioned um, microaggressions and you mentioned um, white fragility. Now, I want to speak, in a, speak to white fragility in the context of, of fear. Like, like where, where does this all come from, in your opinion? You know, it's interesting. My ex and I used to talk about this and he used to make some valuable points. And again, it's interesting, right? Because a huge portion of my clientele are white women, top 5%, like, you know, um, and we always used to have this discussion that, you know, white women actually have some of the most influence, but are not even aware of, I don't know if that they're not aware or, yeah. I don't know, like I'm still always trying to navigate that even in relationship to my own, kind of childhood being raised with my white grandfather who was racist right. and he wasn't particularly dominant in his day-to-day -day kind of behavior but you know 
he shaped my early views of um, the world out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I feel like for white women specifically, um, that they don't feel a lot of times that they can make an impact, that they're very disempowered. Mm-hmm. And obviously not all, but, or, you know, the other pieces, it just doesn't affect them. So they don't care. Right. You know, um, often I think a lot of times we're fragile because our lives have been way too easy. Mm, fragile way too easy. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. You know, like there's, there's not that resilience to face um, difficult issues, humanitarian issues, um, because you don't, they haven't impacted your life often. You know, when you hear white women get passionate about things, it's usually about sexual abuse and, um, you know, the Me Too movement, you know, and protecting their little girls, you know, at all costs. But very often, most often, they're not, they're not willing to lend that passion to anti-black racism. Mm. Um, and it's interesting too, because, you know, we all know Amy Cooper now. I'm, I'm actually angry at myself for saying her name and giving her spaces in the show. But anyways, um, but, you know, she's so indicative of the panic of white women and the fear of black men. And it's so funny because I always particularly look, and that's why I called it out specifically on my Facebook the other day. I'm still waiting for all of the white women that I know who are therapists who claim to be trauma-informed who are literally not saying anything. Mm. And I hear them talk about trauma, and I hear them talk about attachment theory, and I hear them talk about all these things. But I do not understand how they cannot be screaming at the top of their lungs right now because you can't talk about trauma and attachment theory and not look at what has happened to black people over the last hundreds of years and understand why that we are seeing, you know, which is the big go-to a lot of people, you know, want to quote or reference black on black violence as an excuse, as an excuse for their fears and thinking because it's black on black violence that it's a black problem and i'm like no this is a white problem like mm-hmm. you have you told a seven-year-old little boy that he was scary in your school systems mm-hmm. because he didn't know how to articulate his emotions you told him he was bad from the time he could open his eyes and ears so please don't ask wonder why 15, 16, 17 years later, particularly, and you know this is a very personal issue to me, right. yeah. I have a, a son who has been criminalized. And and if you, you can look at his outcome, but you can't look at his outcome without knowing his whole story, because that right. is ignorant. Right. Because he was a seven-year-old boy who needed help. Yeah. He was experiencing trauma, and the way that we address seven-year-old boy, black boys in crisis is extremely different than how we address seven-year-old white girls in crisis. Okay, now, absolutely, wow. <laughs> so I, I just wanna, what, there's this, um, this quote that I saw online um, that I thought was pretty interesting, and it says, anti-racism is not an identity or a checklist. It's an ongoing decision to uproot the way white supremacy resides within you 
your relationships and the systems you navigate each day. Yeah. So there's like an action element to this. It's not just, okay, I just did my thing. I made one post and that's good to go. It's, it's a, a daily practice of dismantling. Yeah, it is a daily practice. And I think that, uh, you know, I've been told along the way to stop being so political. It hurts my business. Whoa. <laughs> um, I've heard all kinds of things, right? You know, um, keep business separate. And I'm like, you know, my child doesn't get to keep racism separate when he goes to school. So, you know, at the end of the day, I've had to reconcile, you know, and, and truth be told again, right? It's easy. It's very easy to slip back into complacency. No, it doesn't matter how or where you are. Mm -hmm. It's so easy. And I have to check myself all the time because stuff will come up. Now, when I address things with my children, I actually, now that they're older, always ask their permission. Right. Um, because they now, you know, I want to address things, but lots of times when I address things like there, I'm not, I have to recognize, or sorry, re recognize, look, I'm making up a new word, yeah. recognize and acknowledge yeah. <laughs> their, their exhaustion and all of it. Like sometimes they want to let things go because they need to recover. Yes. Um, so I have to, my, my first, my first kind of step is to check in with my child. If it has to do with systemic, you know, that's the biggest piece of systemic racism that we face on a day to day basis. Obviously it's everywhere, but that's like the, you know, where they spend a huge portion of their time. Right. Um, but, um, and then beyond that, I find myself sometimes feeling like I, I do have those feelings where it's like, it's hopeless. Like white people in positions of power don't want to listen. And I feel so, and then I, I also feel like this additional responsibility as a white woman, knowing, cause I think about how exhausted I feel. <laughs> and I say that with complete awareness because it blows my mind. And I think about my, my friends and family who have been dealing with this their whole lives. Right. And I'm just, and that's where I'm like, okay, fine. You know what? You can give yourself a break. You can always give yourself a break, but you've got to, you can't, you can't stop because then white supremacy wins. Um, and it hasn't been dismantled. And I think, when I hear people say, you know, oh, slavery was this many years ago. Oh, look, everybody's, you know, every, we have equality now. And I think to myself, I don't know where to start with you because unless we literally destroyed the existing systems and rebuilt them with black people's voices and other people of color as a part of building that infrastructure, we really, we've marginalized, we've marginally advanced. All right. So we're pretty much moving towards this like place of multiculturalism that like we, you know, as Canadians, we like to preach to the world that we're all so connected and everything is balanced. I mean, like, you know, this is an opportunity to really bring that in a real tangible way. Like I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. Well, I guess, um, you know, just to conclude, like what are some, I guess, like, tangible like actions you feel that you know people who would like to be be allies or you know um, stand up for anti-black racism what, what are some like just like simple things that that, that you feel that they, they can do 
Well, I, so I'm going to segue with, cause I've been kind of checking out the comments too. Okay. Um, and somebody actually that I know just asked, and I actually haven't uh, seen the post, but I can, I mean, common sentiment, but it's a great segue into what you're asking. Like what can people do? Right. Um, it, it, so she said, if you have time, please touch on how dangerous sharing the post from the Toronto police officer saying, don't blame me is I actually haven't seen that post yet, but okay. it's a common, it's a common sentiment. I didn't do it. So it's not my responsibility. Right. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. Right. So if you want to be an ally, stop negating responsibility because you're not being blatantly, blatantly racist. It goes back to what we said before. Your silence is, you know, like somebody else said um, on mm. another post this morning, your silence is co-signing this violence. Your yeah. silence is co-signing. This is where silence is violence. <laughs> yes, silence is violence. You know, um, I think right now, if you care about the people in your life, and people in general who are having to face anti-black racism and other forms of racism, this moment, even if you don't know what to say, is the time that you start saying, where do I find these resources? And to be honest, don't burden black people right now, in my opinion. Stop burdening black people to do the work for you. Like, it's not that hard. I mean, I was grateful when you shared a resource the other day, but I was like, you know, and I, I don't think that you made that one up because I've seen yeah. it a couple times, but, um, you know, enough people now are sharing resources. By the end of the day, you could have advanced yourself. Right. By the end of the next hour, you could have informed yourself. You could learn to understand what systemic racism is. And I always say to you, like, opinions mean nothing to me. I don't care about opinions. Mm. I care about facts. I care about um, uh, structural sociology. I care about understanding issues from a fundamental level so that you are educated enough to see it, speak it, challenge it, and change it. Period. That's it. So, yeah. you know, you are not anyone's ally by saying, I'm not racist. I don't see color. It makes me want to pull my hair out. Don't lie. Are you like, first of all, please don't lie. Like are you telling me when you go to the grocery store that you don't notice someone's black. Come on. Like, are you blind? Right. Like, of course you do. And, and in that, I appreciate that you have maybe been raised with, you know, in the seventies and eighties were, especially the seventies, if you're raised by that kind of right. generations, it was peace and love. And, and right. there's nothing wrong with, yes, this is about love, but love is not so always sunshine and butterflies. Right. Love is being proactive, taking yeah. action, being a voice. And, and I think that the, that piece, right. That, you know, I don't think that a lot of people really realize and again, I say this, and I always use myself as an example. I'm raising three black children. I do the work all the time, mm -hmm. and I still make microaggressions. Right. And wow. Wow. so, you know, I, I'm always learning, and I'm always having to listen, and I'm always having to check myself. And, and, and sometimes it's things that I've even learned. Like, I will say, I have sayings that my grandfather used to say that sometimes will just roll off my tongue. Oh, Right? And my son will look at me, what did yeah. you just say? And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. What did I just say? No, 
but just just to add to that, I mean, like so many things are just so woven in and embedded in tradition and culture and certain sayings, like games that we used to play as, as a kid, like, you know, um, playing tag with like eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a by the toe. I mean, my generation was tiger when I was around. But I know as soon as I wasn't around, it was another word. You know what I mean? So yeah. um, and, and these are the ways how like racism and anti-black racism was like perpetuated. You know, it was normalized just through everyday life, you know. Um, but just to close, there's like another like meme that I saw, which, which I thought was pretty accurate, and I posted it earlier today. And it says that wishes that that people would would love black people the way how they love black culture. Yes, I saw that one today. And, and I thought that was that was really profound. You know, um, if yeah, you know, ab absolutely. You know, there's no separation, even though we like to put things in boxes. It's all one movement. Foundations, you know, our humanity, and we all got to do our part to um, to push this forward. You know, continue the conversation. Yeah, and that piece about black culture, you know, I feel like it is been, it, that's becoming an escalating issue. Oh, it's yeah. an issue in my, in my like what I'm observing with teen culture right now, and it has been a constant thing, right? Where the boys will say, you know, people are using music as an excuse to speak in a derogatory way, or you know, they're loving again black culture, but none of these boys would ever stand up in the locker room. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and that, I mean, yeah, like our, like hip hop has been hijacked. It's, it's been weaponized. Um, and you know what, like that's, that's a whole other topic though, but we'll save that for another conversation though. But I want to thank you for, for taking time out to um, getting this conversation going. I'm hoping those um, that see this, especially um, allies that are on my Facebook um, will be encouraged, you know, to even reach out to me if they want to have conversations and figure out what needs to do. Um, I, I like how you said that it's not up to black people to, um, to do all the trainings and whatnot. I agree. Um, I personally don't mind. Like, I love sharing information, anything I can contribute. But for a lot of us, it's exhausting and very tired. Like, you know, it's like we've been doing this. We don't want to do it no more. It's time for you guys. You know, you all. I, and like, you know, it doesn't take long. Like, you can Google search, like, <laughs> how to work on my white privilege, like right now. And Literally. you'll get some resources, maybe not the best ones, but, you know, you can also choose to engage people that will white people who have been doing the work, who have lists of resources and, and but read the information because you can't say things. And then when you offend somebody, just say, oh, it's just a joke. Uh, microaggressions. Yep. Right. Totally. <laughs> well, amazing. Andrea, thank you very much um, for, for this conversation. I hope um, people who've been watching, viewers, get something insightful out of this. And I know that we'll, we'll, we'll do this again. You know, um, the conversation, you know, is continuous. And yeah, so thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you for having me. It was really great chatting. No problem. All right, man. Until next time. Bye. Take care. And if you enjoyed our episode for today, make sure you hit that subscription button so you can be in tune with future episodes to come. I would like to thank you for spending time with us. I surely hope you gain some knowledge, some wisdom and understanding so that we can ultimately reason with logic. Until next time, peace.